0: As a senior at Mayo Peck High School back in 1989, I was sports editor of the student newspaper, The Chieftain. And somehow, I convinced a New England Patriots executive assistant to set me up with a phone interview with Victor Kayam, the team's owner. It was a huge coup for 17-year-old me. And when I dialed the number to the team's offices, then was patched through to Kayyem, I was as nervous as a human being can be. Uh, hi, M- Mr. Kayyem? My my name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a, a student reporter for the high school newspaper in in Mayo Pack, New York. And and I was told I could I could interview you. Kaium was not having it. What? He said, "I don't no no. I don't have time for this. Sorry, kid. Yeah, no. Not going to do this. No, no. Sorry. Bye." Click. I think about that all these years later when people need help or advice or just a few minutes of time. I think about Victor Kayyem. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Jimmy Kimmel the host and executive producer of Jimmy Kimmel Live. And we're talking comedy writing and humor and all things Donald Trump Jr., Fred Savage, Bill Simmons, on and on and on. This is episode number 232. Let's sing some Yang. Dad, I left for college and nobody here has ever heard of you. All right, well, Jimmy, first
1: of all, thank you for... uh, Thank you for doing this. I very much. Thanks for inviting me into your closet. A lot of people will come
0: out of the closet. You've just invited others in. I am in the closet. It's kind of embarrassing. This is totally random. And I was thinking about this the other day. So I saw you about whatever two months ago at the premiere of the thirty for thirty that you worked on about the eighty six Mets. Yes. And I was thinking about something. You've probably been asked this before. You show up right and. People are like, oh, there's Jimmy Kimmel. There's Jimmy Kimmel. Like my kids are like, oh, there's Jimmy Kimmel. There's Jimmy Kimmel. This has nothing to do with writing. <laughs> do you find that stuff? Do you find it weird that you're a pla- you're at a place in your life where it's like, there's Jimmy Kimmel. There's Jimmy Kimmel. Or do you get used to that? No, you get used to it. It's like
1: anything, really. It's like being very beautiful. You know, um, you may go through an awkward phase. <laughs> uh, not only am I used to it, I'm conscious of it. And. It's interesting because I had this conversation with, I think, who was it? A couple of people. I think I had it with, um, what's his name? Rami Malek from uh, the James Bond movie. And I was talking about, he was talking about meeting the Royals. And I realized that had so many conversations with so many celebrities about meeting the Royals and, I I think the Royals have to be aware that every conversation that they have with everyone is going to be recounted in excruciating detail, maybe exaggerated. So you have to be aware of that. And also there's part of me that, you know, listen, I know not everyone's a fan of mine and most people are like, yeah, all right, whatever, there he is. But um, if there is somebody that I run across, I want to make sure to be extra nice to them. Like for me growing up, I loved Steve Garvey. He was my favorite baseball yeah. player and I still love Steve Garvey, but I met him when I was working at a radio station in Tampa and it was one of these deals where, first of all, this girl I worked with is like, you know, I'm going to this banquet tonight and Steve Garvey's one of the speakers. And I was like, Oh my God. She said, do you want to come? I was like, ah, yes. And I was terrified and, and we got there and we went to the banquet and I don't even remember what it was about, but, at the like, conclusion of the evening, there was a reception line and you stand in line and then you meet Steve Garvey and uh, it was me and her. And she's like, hi. he said, I said, Steve, hi, Steve. You know, I was very excited. And uh, I mean, I'm a lunatic. Like I have a, I have a whole Footlocker full to this day, full of clippings uh, about Steve Garvey from when I was a kid, you know, and, um, and he's like, oh, hi, how are you? Nice to meet you. And who's this? He like, you know, he's moving it along and turned his attention to this woman gig I worked with. And I was like, well, never mind who this is. She doesn't care about you. <laughs> and I remember every detail of, of that uh, experience. And so I want to make sure that um, that
0: if I meet somebody to whom I am there, Steve Garvey, I, I it's a good one. Were you devastated when Steve Garvey went to the Padres and the Dodgers replaced him with Greg Brock, which shows you how big of a loser I am that I know that fact.
1: I was devastated and I, I stopped being a Dodger fan uh, as a result of that. I, I put a curse on them and it didn't really work, but it worked for a while. <laughs> yeah. Wasn't that something uh, Greg Brock was the replacement and, you know, Garvey went to the Padres and I'd grown up in Las Vegas and, um, and the Padres had a farm team there, the Las Vegas stars. And so I knew all those players. So it was kind of a natural for me to renounce the Dodgers and root for Steve for those last few years. And then they went to the world series. They didn't win, but it was fun watching him get
0: there. I just know. The weirdest thing is Steve Garvey's number is retired by the Padres, but not by the Dodgers. I know it's, I hate
1: seeing the number six on any player. Uh, you know, it's, it's funny because I talked to the owner of the Dodgers, Frank McCourt, when he was the owner of the Dodgers, I was like, you should retire Garvey's number. And he's like, really? I was like, yeah, really? <laughs>
0: you dick? <laughs> He's like the fourth greatest Met. If if Steve Garvey is a Met, his number's up there. Oh yeah, twenty Absolutely. years ago.
1: Absolutely. That's yeah. You have to be careful with the team you pick. Like yeah, like I see you're wearing a Brewers cap there, right? Yeah. If you go to the Brewers, um, you're probably going to get that number retired. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. It's funny. All right. So I wanted to talk about writing, and um, I was thinking like my least favorite thing. So I, I, I used to advise the student newspaper at Chapman, Chapman University in Orange. Right. And you would have students and they come along and they say, I'm a really funny writer. I'm a really funny writer. One thing I'm really good at is being a funny writer. And I'm always thinking my first instinct is you're probably not. Like writing funny is really hard. Yeah. I think it's really hard. Um, it is. I don't know. Like do you recoil when someone's like, I'm a really funny writer? Or do you presume, oh yeah, you probably are. It's You know. Well, I don't
1: find myself in that situation much. Mostly people will send their materials and we review them and then we decide if we think they're a funny writer or not. But for me, my writing is very different than than almost any writing because it's I'm writing material that is to be read aloud and performed. So I have a system of writing that is very strange that I developed when I was a sports guy on the radio where I will use um, dashes and certain like underlined words to accentuate, to hit the notes that I want to hit. And then when I have to write something that is to be read for a a publication or something, it's a weird, it's a hard transition for me because it all has to be right there. And you can't um, use these little codes that I have for myself, but uh, they're, they're essential to me. And You know, even if I'm sometimes I will if I'm writing something uh, for others to read, I'll I'll just by reflex underline a certain word. (laughs) I know it's obnoxious when you're (laughs) you're sending an email or something, but it's what I do every day. You know, I wind up writing eight to 10 pages of of monologue every day. And then there are scripts on
0: the side, too. All right. So I have no I'm an idiot when it comes to your world and other things, but definitely your world. Like you have a show every night. You have a monologue you give. You have writers who work for you. I have no concept how it actually goes from here to you're standing on a stage delivering.
1: Well, it has evolved. And I really don't know exactly how the other late night hosts do it either. You know, it's like, I think it's just something you figure out for yourself. In the old days, when Johnny Carson or whomever was doing a a show like this, they'd have one joke on a cue card. Usually it'd be just the beats, it wouldn't be word for word. And they'd read 10 of them. And, you know, if one was a dud, Johnny would make fun of it. And Dave did the same thing. He didn't do 10, but he'd do, I don't know, he'd do like three to five jokes in his monologue and then he'd, he'd move over to his desk. Um, and then Leno extended it. And he would do, you know, jokes just that were on cards and he'd kind of string it together by him on stage live. But essentially, those guys were reading. Jokes that were written by other people. I'm sure they tuned them up in some way, but they were reading these jokes that were written by the group. Whereas I have a very different situation in that. First of all, the internet has changed everything in that you know, we don't have a writer's room. They have a room where they're in, but I don't have meetings with, with the writers every day, especially after now that COVID is happening. We we almost never do that, but I uh, In the morning, I'll get a, a, about 30 pages of material. We tell them what topics we want to talk about. In the morning, I get about 30 pages of material, and in about 35 minutes, I'll whittle that down significantly to maybe five pages of material. Then I have a meeting about the guests and all that other stuff. And in the meantime, the writers are writing another round of jokes, um, filling in the holes that are there, and also if there are additional topics, That come up throughout the day and then at 1 30 every day uh the guy josh holloway who's a writer he sits in the room with me another guy greg martin sits in my office with me and they compile everything they make it into a rough monologue and then i take that whole rough monologue and i rewrite a lot of it and um i refine a lot of it and sometimes i'll cut whole chunks and, um, at three thirty that's it. the monologue's done. We basically we we don't just flesh it out, but we we put the fine details in from one thirty to three thirty every day on at four thirty I go on stage, I do the monologue, I do the show, and at five thirty I'm done. We start over again.
0: Do they need to be writing or trying to write in your voice when they're presenting you these things? kind of um but my voice is
1: fairly straightforward. So there's not necessarily, it's not like I have a an odd delivery or anything like that. I, you know, I, it's pretty straightforward. So there are words, my philosophy, if you want to call it that, and I hesitate to do that, but I don't want any of it to seem, I don't want any of the jokes to feel like jokes. I want it to feel like I'm rambling through a conversation with no one on stage, like a crazy person on the street corner. And so if a joke is too detailed or feels too much like a joke, I'll throw it out. I won't do it. Even if it's funny. And sometimes really the challenge is, is editing. It's, you know, you have five jokes that are really good and you want to do all of them, but rarely do five jokes in a row on one subject works just because of, human nature and how you receive those jokes and how you respond to it. It's like, um, you know, it's like throwing five big punches in a row. You just don't see it because you have to mix it up. You have to pepper them a little bit. You have to keep them off balance. So uh, for me, that's another challenge is trying not to go one joke too far. And you could feel it when you did. You're like, I went one too many. There's one too many there. It would have been a perfect time to get out After that one. And over the years you learn that, but there's no rehearsal. I don't rehearse the jokes. I don't test them. I just, the first time I'm doing them is on the stage in front of the audience.
0: Wait, so is there a drastically different thing that, so you're reading what they give you and you're like, that's funny. That's funny. That's funny. Is there a difference between something is funny and you're reading it, but funny on the page different than funny coming out of your mouth in front of people?
1: For sure sometimes there are things that don't seem funny at all and you see this when you read the script too sometimes I think about this sometimes when I'll watch a movie and I'll go you know what actually is a great example I think Ty Burrell uh, who was on Modern Family played the dad on Phil Dunphy on Modern Family I would oftentimes because he is such a funny actor I would think about what his lines must have looked like on the page and how Not that funny they are, but they're writing for him and they know that he's going to deliver it in such a way that it is funny, even though it doesn't seem like it's funny. So it's this weird combination of writing and acting, I guess, that um, that that I do every night and it's very particular to me. I I could write jokes for other people, and there are ways that I construct the jokes that I've learned over the years, like where you put a particular word. And there are no rules, but there are definitely just nuances. And just like when you have to let people catch up or you have to let people, sometimes you want people to get the joke before the joke, comes and um it's it's very difficult to explain if you haven't done it but if you really pay attention
0: you can you can see it if you really analyze it. Wait, I don't totally get that. So you're saying like you're talking about something and you're almost like setting up the joke, right? So you're like a swinger yeah. and you're halfway through your swing and they know what the pitch is it's coming. Like they're aware, all right, this is a change up that's coming and you're almost setting it up for them in a sense. Yeah, like sometimes.
1: Um, okay, so sometimes, let's say they know a changeup is coming, and then the changeup comes, and it looks very much like a change. You want it to look like a changeup. You want them to know that that changeup is coming. Which, of course, you don't want if you're a pitcher. And then when the changeup comes, it's not a baseball. It turns out it's a meatball. You know, it's like yeah. sometimes that's a way of getting to a joke where you, they think you're going to an obvious place and you don't go to the obvious place. I mean, I could actually if we want to make this really educational. Yeah. I don't know if anybody's going to learn anything from me. I could go through like the monologue tonight, maybe give you an example. Yes, please. Do here. Let That'd me be put on my glasses here so I can. Uh, See what We're recording doing this now.
0: on October 27th, just so people know, which is a Wednesday
1: night. Okay. Yes, I I just did the show and I came home and uh, and jumped on here, and um, okay, so here's a good example. So there's this story in uh, Massachusetts. This school superintendent, and I'm sure others at the school uh, at the school district want to de-emphasize Halloween. This is their thing. They want it to be inclusive, and so. You know, in I have an angle already because this already seems ridiculous to me. OK, that this much weight is being put on a thing where kids dress up as Spider-Man, you know, so the so now I want to know all the details, because sometimes the jokes are really in the details. And one of the details that I didn't have until I went in and really read the story was that the school superintendent's name is Julie K- Kuchenberger, which. <laughs> And then there was some discussion about what was the pronoun- the right way to pronounce her name. And I said, I don't care what the right way to pronounce her name is. The funny way is Julie Kuchenberger. And if she's not a known person, you can get away with that, right? So um, I go through her, their memo that they sent out to the parents. And I read it because I need to set the joke up, which is... Obviously, very important. That was one of the things about Donald Trump. He didn't need to set any jokes up because everyone knew everything about him. So that's what made him. It just it was pure punchlines. There was no setup needed. So I um, I say that she doesn't want to have They're fostering a sense of belonging and partnership with the students. They want inclusion of all the students. This is why they're not going to have Halloween. So I say then sounds to me like maybe Julie Kuchenberger couldn't think of a fun costume. So she canceled it for everyone. And then I go on to another setup. Parents have started a petition to save Halloween. The district is standing pat. Kuchenberger is playing it fast. She, I, I cut that part. Sorry. She said there are some people who don't celebrate Halloween, and that means those kids might not come to school that day. And I said, which, all right, problem solved then. you know. And now that wouldn't be funny at all if you read it. In fact, it might not even make sense, but it got a good laugh at the show because, cause of the way I, I delivered it. So it's a different kind of writing as who's feeling marginalized by a Halloween party, goblin Americans. Now the key to that is the word goblin uh, ends with an in sound. So like African Americans or Italian Americans or whatever it, it matches up and subconsciously people know that. And then I say, I don't understand. All I know is for sure is there are about to be a lot of eggs thrown at the Kuchenberger house. And just the words Kuchenberger house on their own are funny. If her name was, if it was a different name, it would be kind of funny, but it wouldn't be that funny. And a lot of it is just about the details. Um, you want to be clever. Um, you The best jokes have like a funny word in them. And um, the funny word is hopefully at the end of, of the sentence. And um also, hopefully you've got a little bit of a misdirect in there, something they weren't expecting. And, um, and then a lot of it is up to me to just
0: sell it verbally. Like I'm working on a book now about Bo Jackson. Yes. And I literally am writing, I'm taking a break from writing about the 94 season, which was his last season with the angels. Okay. And his first at bat in a spring training game, he hits a home run and I am like fixing like a fiend. I don't just need the name of the pitcher. I need his background. I need to know what the pitch was. I need to know what the count was. I need to know how many people are at the stadium. Like all those details combined are what makes the story good as opposed to in his first at bat, he hit a home run. Um, when it comes to this stuff, you mentioned jokes are in the details. Yeah. Why is that? What is it about the details, the nitty gritty that makes it more funny than just a broader approach? I think there's a
1: a richness that is added to it. I think it's what separates you from every other person that um, that you talk to. I mean, you know, people around you are funny. You have funny people at your office. You have funny people in your family, probably. But when somebody really digs in and really finds the gold, I guess it's like when you have a great meal, you know, even if it's something simple. Even if it's just a hamburger, that's very simple. Like, it, what matters is like how hard do you press the meat together, and um, what temperature the grill is, and what style you're going for, and just the little hints. Are you gonna Are you gonna steam the bun a little bit? Are you gonna grill the bun a little bit? Are you gonna leave the bun as it is? What are you gonna put on it? Like all of these things uh, make it exceptional. And when you're a professional like you are, it has to be exceptional. And I think that we. We see, we read so much, we hear so much that we recognize when something is exceptional. And I think that that's the great lesson as far as jokes go, and really, I think this is a lesson that I learned early on from um, from Adam Carolla, who was my partner on the Man Show, who is um, he, he's you know he's dyslexic, he's got you know he's has many like learning. Um, issues that he dealt with when he was a kid. And as a result, he became very verbal and very particular. And so he would never say, uh, yeah, a truck is going to hit her. He'd say like, uh, uh, you know, a Ford F-250 with dualies uh, ran into her, you know, and it just makes it funnier. You know, I wish I knew why. I don't really know why, but I do. That extra effort, though, is appreciated somewhere subconsciously in the brain. And if you could find those details, those little details, you know, that's the I think that's like the the biggest lesson as far as writing jokes goes. You find that perfect word. I mean, like there was a joke in uh, one of the writers um, wrote today and it was pretty good. It was uh, it was about Donald Trump and it was about um, covid and um, uh, he was too distracted by the by the the uh, election to pay attention to covid and the joke was something like distract he's, he's too distracted to pay attention to covid he that's like saying a dog was too distracted to open a coffee shop which is kind of funny but i changed it to a dog is too distracted to open a museum because it's just it's a little it's elevated above coffee shop it's um the word is kind of is funnier and um more unique. And,
0: uh, I just think it worked just a little bit better like that. Wait, I'm fascinated by this. So you read the joke and it says coffee shop. Does a museum immediately enter your head? Or are you like, what's a better word for this? What's a better word for this?
1: No, I, I, it, yeah, I, I, I stopped and I thought about it for, I don't know, probably three seconds, but I thought, what's a better word. And sometimes I'll, um, when I'm running through the jokes in the morning, I know that I'm going to come up with a better specific or a better analogy um, analogies are, those are, you know, that's, you know, or metaphors or whatever the fuck they are, similes. I don't even know really which is which, but, um, it, when you say this, that's like, you know, if you can come up with a good one, you will get a, a, a strong laugh almost every single time. People love an analogy because it really explains it to them. And, um, sometimes I'll just write like analogy TBD, and then I'll figure it out
0: later. Is it easy to get um, or is there a risk of getting lazy with analogies? He was as fat as a, he was as quick as a, he was as blank. Well, there, yeah, there is, but you must
1: avoid it. I, you don't want, I mean, you wouldn't want to see as quick as a Fox. Nobody would laugh as, at that, but you, you could say like he was, um, he was as quick as, uh, as me um, uh, getting from the car to the bathroom, you know, like that, kind.
0: you know, something like that. But I want to ask you, cause you mentioned Julie Kuchenberg, right? Yeah. And, Somewhere out there, there's this woman, Julie Kuchenberg, who's yeah, like, yeah. what the fuck did I do? Like, I'm just trying to do my job here. Like, in your position, do you just can you not really worry? Is it just like eh, this is it's all material? No, I am pretty careful. I don't want to
1: destroy a, a private individual's life unless they've done something very, very bad. So um, I present it somewhat even-handedly, I think. I think, you know, in that particular community, there are a lot of people that are mad at at her, but I keep it pretty light. You know, yeah. I don't think she did anything wrong. I just don't
0: I just don't get it right. And sometimes a little bit of willful ignorance helps sell the jokes. So um, I mentioned I'm working on a Bo Jackson biography. When Bo Jackson was a senior at Auburn, he appeared on Bob Hope's Christmas special. You probably remember these when they would bring in oh, the yeah. All American team and each guy would come out and he would say something. This is what he said about Bo Jackson. He's some kind of open field runner. He is really tricky. In fact, he's so tricky in the instant replays, he's doing something else. So that doesn't strike me as even slightly funny. It's not. <laughs> so,
1: like, here's the thing about Bob Hope, from what I can understand. <laughs> Apparently he was a genius when he was acting. I, I haven't really watched many of those. I haven't watched like the lemon drop kid or anything like that, but the people who I respect are very fond of them. And so I, I, uh, All I know is uh, Bob Hope is I know the guy who did those NBC specials and who was apparently reading the jokes for the first time every single time he did a joke. And I remember somebody, I forget who it was. It was a comedian, uh, an older guy who was talking about writing jokes for Bob Hope. And, you know, he had like some, you know, he had some guys who were equally old writing jokes. and, And, you know, when you, the thing about getting old is, and the reason why sometimes you'll see older people, sometimes you see older people like Mel Brooks and you go, oh my God, this person is like still the funniest person in the world. This doesn't make any sense. But when people's jokes and their humor is based on references that the audience gets, um, those are the people who run into trouble. Like um, like I remember having Joan Rivers on the show and she was going on and on about Toadie Fields. And I was just sitting there going like, boy, nobody in this audience knows who that is. Nobody. I barely know who Toady Fields is. And I, I, all I know is that I, I think she had a leg amputated and, and that's not that funny. <laughs> and and uh, so um, I think Bob was surrounded by a bunch of guys who were as out of touch as he is. And um, and that and he was doing like topical humor with people who were out of the headlines like Bo Jackson and Brooke Shields and Evander Holyfield and of course none of it worked at all but there were only four channels so what the hell are you gonna do and he built up so much goodwill from traveling overseas and entertaining the troops that people are looking at and going like I guess this is funny but somebody was telling me that they wrote jokes for Bob Hope and he was so old and so blind that the jokes were like you know they were printing them on not on um on cue cards but uh on like um on sales
0: and, and like queen size sheets so oh my God because he couldn't read them otherwise. Do you feel it is important to surround yourself with younger writers?
1: no well, no, I feel it's important to surround yourself with a mix of of writers from various groups. I think that it's very important if if you're doing a show like mine, I, I don't necessarily think it's important if if you're one of these like stand-up comics who have a group of writers who help you with the material, which is, you know, rarer and rarer as, as the years go on. But I think if you're doing a show like ours, which is reaching out to a lot of different people, the best way to know what like your viewers are thinking about is to have a nice mix of people. And I think that, you know, in our business, people, talk about diversity like it's a, um, like it's a nuisance, but, um, it really, I mean, just like when it comes to, um, humanity, it, it makes you stronger. It does because you, you want to know, I want to know. And I tell the writers this, like, I know your inclination is to write stuff for me. And I, I do want that, but I don't want anything that's fake. And, you know, if you don't have kids, and you don't know what's like, I don't necessarily want you focusing on that. I want to know, like, you know, we have a single woman that works at the show, and, uh, you know, I want to know what, like, what she's, like, about the dating apps and, like, her, you know, her life and, like, what she's focused on. I mean, I did a joke tonight that, to be honest, I don't even really understand, but I know that it's funny, and I know that a lot of women – will understand it. And I don't know if, did you see that woman on Instagram who took a selfie in front of her father's co- coffin? Yes. Yes. Okay. So, you know, it's, it's, it's low hanging fruit, obviously, <laughs> but um there's always something funny that you can find. That's not so obvious. And uh, like my joke, in, which is something that I really feel. And I think I happened upon this thought when the Menendez brothers um, killed their parents, like, you know what they did raise, you know, they did raise them. <laughs> you know, it's like, if anybody's good, if, if they're going to kill anybody, I want it to be the people who raised them. So, you know, I said something to the effect of, um, uh, the way I look at it, if that's the way he raised his kid, this is what he gets. You know, she's posing outside of his coffin. But um one of the writers wrote um she's definitely an influencer. She's influencing people to understand that a one-shoulder double-breasted blazer dress is not a good look. I don't even know, you know, I could never analyze something like that. I don't know. You know, to me, the most descriptive I get about women's clothing is blouse. You know, and then my wife makes fun of me. So that's the kind of stuff that you will not get if you have a bunch of writers who
0: are your age and look like you, you know, to use that joke tonight. Yeah. And it got a good response. Yeah. To a certain degree. Do you just have to trust your writers if they're of a different demographic? Do you sometimes just say I'm putting yeah. it Yeah. you?
1: And I also know, I just know, I like, I, I just know I I'm tickled by specifics like that. Like I found out my wife always thinks it's funny when I'll find, you know, I'm always trying to figure out what to get her for a birthday or whatever. And I, I, you know, I, I ask questions and sometimes I'll go to her sister and, um, I found out about something that I'd never, you know, I mean, I'd seen them, but I didn't know there's was anything called a cross body bag. Do you know what this is? You're not basically it's a purse. But the the strap goes across your body like a seatbelt or like a sash in the Miss USA concert, a contest. So this is a, a cross body bag. So now I frequently, it's just in conversations. <laughs> if I meet somebody, I'm with my wife, especially. I'll say like, "Oh, a cute cross body bag." <laughs> it's just because it's so out of character that it's funny coming from me and or at least to her it is uh, you know but i think most people know my character and they know that that's something that uh, like i remember finding out what a french manicure was and then whenever i'd see when i go oh is that a french manicure <laughs> and it just always it just always
0: kind of gets a laugh can you go to that well repeatedly you know like the idea that oh here's jimmy kimmel and he's kind of a guy guy and he, oh he french manicure or you know Snuggy bag
1: you have to be you have to be sparing with things, you know, you don't want to overdo them. And sometimes you do overdo them. And, um, and sometimes you can underdo them, I guess, but they don't come around that often. You know, it's maybe like once every few months that I really zero in on something that is out of my world, but I, I come to understand from talking about it. Like, just like, sometimes there's like my wife and her sister, used to do this thing where they would buy an outfit and they would keep the tag on the outfit. And then if they got no compliments on the outfit at work, the outfit would go back. It would be returned. (laughs) And this to me seems like insanity. It actually seems like kind of illegal to me, I think, but, but you start mentioning this and a lot of women will go like, Oh yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like What? Oh, OK. Well, I've just now learned something I didn't know. I didn't know anything about. My mom hates that I'm a journalist because she hates that I have taken the rule basically that anything for my life is fair game to you. My <laughs> writing. Is it the same in your world? Like, is your wife aware like pretty much anything is fair game?
1: Well, I don't you know, I don't necessarily approach it like that. But um, my mom there's a story that I tell all the time and my mother hates when I tell it. (laughs) And and now she started not saying anything. So I know she really hates it because I think she feels like if she brings it up again, I will bring it up more often. But when we were kids, she would sometimes lay on the ground and pretend to be dead (laughs) until we cried and like, let it go on for like a very sick amount of time. (laughs) And, you know, my you know, feeling is like, hey, listen, you know what? Uh, I bought you guys a house. This is <laughs> you know, I'm going to you know what? I'm going to mine some of this stuff. And, and and guess what? You did it. So um, it is true. And uh, it's part of my life. And it's what made me it's part of what made me uh, weird. And so I'm going to talk about
0: it. But there are things that obviously are off limits. I just want to counter that by saying my bar mitzvah, it was at the Mount Kisco Holiday Inn in Mount Kisco, New York. (laughs) I don't brag. And my mom invited. Let's say there are a hundred guests. Seventy of the guests were invited to a cocktail hour beforehand, and in the same building, the reception. And thirty of the guests were just invited to the cocktail hour, but they did not know they were not being invited to a bigger reception. (laughs) That's bad planning, yeah,
1: it's got to go the other way.
0: It <laughs> argued for years that she was in the right. and I'm like, you're not in the right. And she hates she, does, right she, now. does she still believe she's in the right? Yes, hundred percent.
1: Well, I think you could probably I think you could get affidavits from thousands of people, maybe start getting them from like everyone you meet um, signing it and just overwhelm her with
0: with public opinion. It would make no difference. Wait, the other day you um, there was something that caught my eye caught your eye Donald Trump Jr selling a shirt mocking Alec Baldwin, right? Yeah. And wait, what the shirt say? Oh, guns don't kill people. Alec Baldwin kills people. And this was right after the awful accident in New Mexico. And you commented on it. One of the things you said was, you know, what a kind and wonderful person. All proceeds from the sale go up one of his working nostrils. When you have something like that, and mm-hmm. it's so obviously pathetic and wrong and awful, and it also comes from this buffoon Donald Trump Jr. Are you ever like let's just skip this one. Like it's too easy. Let's just skip this one or no.
1: Yeah. I, yeah, I am, but not that one because it was something that was, you know, I first of all, I knew I could get some, some jokes out of it. So that's, you know, I mean, that's number one, usually. <laughs> um, secondly, he needs to be called out for that, you know, and, um, and, and, Now we have the Internet. And of course, that happens. But I know what matters most to those guys is these late night talk shows. And you see it over and over again in every book about Donald Trump that he he would get upset that we would make fun of him. And um, it was really a sore point for him. And that pleases me. And um, Donald Trump Jr. is a character that I'm very interested in. I mean, just his name, if you think about it donald trump jr is about i mean that's far as funny specifics i mean that's it's there's nothing better than that yeah i yeah i always uh, sometimes i'll tell a joke where, you know i grew up in vegas and people will say like well what'd you what'd you do what'd you do i, I was like hey you know it's a very normal i went to um uh, Sammy Davis Jr. Junior high school. you know This is a dumb joke, but um, Donald Trump Jr. is fascinating to me. But I think more than anything, it made me really mad and I wanted to respond to it because it was so unbelievably disgusting. And also, as I said to my wife that morning, when I, I saw that story, I just said, I just can't believe like even the most hardcore MAGA people, I just I can't believe that they wouldn't agree with me on this. And I do feel that way. I bet you. I bet you 80 percent of them agree on that one. And I want to bring that to light. You know, I I just it's something that I feel needs a, a light on it because it's easy for these guys to do all that horrible stuff in their own little sphere. And if nobody ever points it out, it makes it okay. Do you want to impact politics? I don't necessarily want to impact politics. I mean, listen, uh, you know, if in a positive way, I want to, you know, there's nothing I wouldn't want to have an impact on. But I do think it's very important to, and not just for me, but for my colleagues to remind people that this isn't normal and to point out why it isn't normal. And I think most of us are seen as pretty normal people and um, what we say is a litmus test, in a way, you know. Is a, like, it, you know, if you agree with me on ninety-five percent of the things I'm talking about, you probably will agree with me when it comes to something like this, or it comes to something like health care, or, you know, I just know that like, our politicians, particularly on the the GOP side, are are not listening even to their supporters you know we know that 70 something percent of americans support background checks on guns we know that like so we need to remind people of that we need to remind people what that these people who are supposed to be representing them are not necessarily for the same things that they're for i think healthcare was the same thing i think without like that kind of fox news Um, right-wing OAN all this bullshit spin we would evaluate these things on their own merits and we'd go like okay I have a job I am a farmer and um I think I should be entitled to the same kind of health care that um that someone else who has more money than I and the answer of course is yes why wouldn't the answer be yes But now these people go, no, (laughs) he's like, what? What do you mean? No, (laughs) like like, it's going to be really interesting to see this billionaire's tax, which is they say it would affect 700 Americans, which, you know, is, you know, is nothing, obviously. And of course, the people it's affecting, it will make no difference in their lives whatsoever, their families' lives or any of that stuff. But it will be interesting to see a bunch of poor people who are Republicans who are angry about that. They're not really angry about that. They're angry about that because their leaders are telling them they should be angry about that. They're not evaluating this stuff on their own. And I think that that's a role that that we serve. And by the way, on the other side, you know, you if you're a, a right-wing comedian and you see something that you feel is, is wrong or off or whatever, you should probably, you should do the same thing. You shine the light in whatever direction you you want to shine that light but i do think that that is part of our job
0: before we continue with two writers slinging a quick word from our sponsor hey this is jeff perlman i'm here with my daughter casey and i hear you're rushing a sorority in college it's true i hate sororities is that because when you were at delaware tech all the greek girls laughed at you and wouldn't let you into their parties no I bet you tried asking a sorority girl out, and she was like, listen, loser, I only date cool bros with tats and kegs, so walk the other way, John, and you were like, it's Jeff, and she was like, I don't care, just go. No. So what is it? I just don't understand why sororities don't wear old USFL jerseys and hats from royalretros.com. They have all different styles and colors. It's really cool. I already put it in order. We're all wearing Arizona Wranglers jerseys for Greek games. Wow, can I come? Uh, sorry, John, but no. I've asked everybody this and you're a good one Ask this: like um, when things are so shitty at certain times and you're going in to do your show. I asked myself this when I write books. I asked Richard Marxist about writing music. Do you ever have moments where you're like, what am what the fuck am I doing? Like, what am I doing like this? All everything sucks in the world. It is hard to get up to. I'm going to go interview Eddie Murphy tonight. I don't know. Do you ever have those moments? where You're like, I'm just not feeling this at all. Well, not with Eddie
1: Murphy. (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah sure. I mean, I've been doing the show for 19 years. I've been on s- stage in the middle of relatives dying, in the middle of health issues, in the middle of national crises, in in the middle of depression, all sorts of things, set illness, um but just a weird thing happens for me when I go out on stage. Like I've never once urinated during the show never like, I never have had to go to the restroom and it's not because I remember like when you, your parents take you on a road trip and I go I'll make sure to pee before you go it just everything turns off like all that other stuff turns off because you're so focused on on being on the stage and the audience being there that everything else just switches off it's weird like even if I have the hiccups right before I go on stage they go away on their own. Like when my name is announced, they're gone. How do you explain that? I have no idea. I really have no idea. Because you've peed four times during this interview.
0: <laughs> yes, but on myself. <laughs> right, that's fair. Let me ask you a, a final thing here. We, um, in my profession, Bill Simmons obviously has had a big, you know, big career and a big impact and uh, respected guy. You hired him in 2003 to write for your show. You he moved out to California, I believe, to write for your show What was it about Bill Simmons? Like, what did you, what was the interest in Bill Simmons? Well, I was a sports guy on the radio at
1: K rock in LA. And, you know, of course we, we all got AOL in the early mid nineties. And we started exploring the wonders of the internet. And it was pretty wonderful for a long time. It was very exciting. And I started, you know, I did sports. So I was on ESPN.com all the time. It was my homepage. And I enjoyed it and there was a lot of good writers, but there was a guy who I felt was speaking to me who was really writing about not just sports, he was doing, he was writing in the same way. And weirdly I was Jimmy, the sports guy, and he was the sports guy. And um, that was just a coincidence, but he was writing about pop culture and um, gambling and all these different things that I had an interest in. And I remember though, and I think, I think you have this with somebody you 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 like, you admire, you're a fan of or whatever, or there's one moment and then maybe two moments and maybe a third moment where you feel like, oh, this is this person is really speaking to me. And for me, um, Bill wrote about a movie that I bet you've seen this and I bet you love this movie. Fast Break starring Gabe Kaplan. Of course. Okay. Well, you know, there's not a lot of us um, mm-hmm. in the fast break, you know. And so this is a movie that I watched, I don't know, like 40, 50 times when I was a teenager and loved. And it was, you know, kind of based on UNLV and uh, Nevada. And, you know, there was a lot of that going on. And I didn't i didn't really, other than my buddy Cleto, who I watched it with, I didn't know anybody who had ever seen that movie. I, I didn't and, for him to write like a whole like you know 700 words about it was like I was like holy shit <laughs> if you know if if this was a woman I'd probably propose and then there were a couple of other things like that and then Bill wrote a review of a roast that I was a part of of Shaquille O'Neal and a funny thing happened and he wrote and he wrote something nice about me and then I emailed him and said hey thanks for writing that and um it just so happened I was at the man show and I was gearing up to do this talk show. Actually, no, I was at the Mantra. I knew Bill a little bit for about a year before the the talk show. But when I um, was trying to figure out what I was going to do on the talk show, I used Bill's column as an example. I was like, I want this to be about sports and pop culture and blah blah, you know, whatever. And I was like, this is a good example. This guy, Bill Simmons. And so I handed it out to all the writers that I was hiring you know the guy mostly there were people from the man show and so they immediately all resented bill (laughs) yeah of course i get yes and so bill walked into a, a lion's den basically and eventually he he won most of them over but um yeah i wrote him and i said i want you to move out here and write for my show and uh he was like uh i don't i don't know but I don't know. I knew from the minute he responded that he was going to come. He tells me it was a big torturous decision, but I just knew he was going to come. I just knew he would love L.A. I mean, he's
0: all the things that tickle him are out here. He was at the 30 for 30 premiere wearing a Marcus Allen Raiders jacket. Yeah. (laughs) Was he a good writer for the show?
1: Um, Yeah, he's a great writer. Um, He was more interested in writing analysis of what he thought was wrong with the show than writing for the show. At a certain point, he just decided to move into my office with me. And so we would just sit there all day. (laughs) And since the two of us, well, people came in and out of the office.
0: So um, we spent a lot of quality time together. Um, Wait, I got to ask you a final, final question because I do this every episode. Usually it's with writers I always say, what is the, uh, what's the worst confrontation you had with an athlete in your career? Uh, if it's an entertainer, I would say, what is the worst sort of moment on stage you've had in your career? What is the worst moment you've had on stage in your well, career? Well,
1: I've had bad conf- I've had confrontations with athletes. I've I've had everything, you name it. I actually, I actually once, um, I was at a Mike Tyson press conference when I was a uh, sports reporter at K-Rock Reporter, I guess is a very a generous word for what I was doing, but um, <laughs> he said, this is after Tyson had, you know, he'd been arrested, he'd, he's in all sorts of trouble, and I'm in this big group of people, and I always wanted to say something dumb, and uh, I raised my hand, and they called on me, and I said, Mike, why is it, why do you think it is that you can't behave yourself? <laughs> oh, my God. And he got really mad and his people got really mad too. Is like his guys, you know, there was a bunch of guys around trying to impress him. And I had to like, I had to get the hell out of there. Like there was, you know, th- there were some uh, rumblings and uh, I was like, I shit, I, you know what? I asked my dumb question. I better get out of here. And in fact that they ran it on ESPN and denounced me <laughs> Wow. I, I wish I had that videotape of like and there's always some joker in the you know like one of those deals like but it was a pretty good question I thought I've had some that I thought were jokes and were and turned out they weren't like um Fred Savage was really mad at me <laughs> and, wait I remember this why was Fred Savage <laughs> oh yeah nobody remembers this but um Fred Savage who I enjoyed on the Wonder Years I met him at the Playboy Mansion I was there with my girlfriend and I think he was there with his girlfriend. It was like one of these, you know, like Christmas parties or something like that. And I was kind of excited to meet him. And he seemed he came up to me and he said, I want you to know something. And this is about a year into my show. He said, I said, what? He said, I was one of your biggest fans. I was like, oh, shit. Why is there a was? here?" (laughs) And I was like, okay. And he goes, I listened to you on K Rock. I was, I watched you on Win Benstein's Money. I just, I, you know, I just thought you were great. And I watched you on the Man Show. And when you were on David Letterman's show, I was so excited because I knew that he was your idol, and I knew what a big deal this was. And so I stayed up to watch it because I was so excited to see you on Letterman. And he's like, in the first time you were bumped? I was like, yeah, yeah, the first time I was bumped. And then you got on the show, and one of the bits I did, because I was visiting from L.A., was um, about Broadway shows. And I say, you know, Dave, I, um, yeah, you, know, you hear so much about Broadway and how great it is, but you know, I'm driving around. There's all these, like, C-list sitcom stars starring in these Broadway shows. I mean, I was like, you know, I started, you know, name things. I said, Fred Savage is the phantom. <laughs> and of course this is not even, you know, didn't even happen. He wasn't the phantom. I was just can joke. And he was like, and I then at that moment I vowed to destroy you. <laughs> wow kevin from the wonder years tells me he vowed to destroy me and i started laughing thinking he was kidding and i realized that he was not kidding and that he didn't appreciate it and then i tried to explain that the only reason i used his name is because his name started with an f and, you know phantom and fred i had that you know i needed an f sound <laughs> you know I guess it could have been Fonzie or something but that didn't seem as believable and um he did not accept my uh explanation and he was really mad at me and I said why don't you come on the show and we'll talk about this and he said no I am not coming on the show and then we reached out multiple times and he really was mad and he really didn't come on on, want to come on the show and then about a year later i was at a restaurant and he was with a group of friends and i see him across the table of the restaurant i'm like oh jesus christ because that's the worst when you run into people in the wild and you know they're mad at you and i see him i was like oh fuck. i hope he doesn't see me so we eat dinner we finish and i call the waiter i'm like you see that guy fred savage over there he's like yeah he's like i want to pay his check um, but, I, you know, I just I just don't make a big deal. I just want to pay his check. And um, so I paid his check and then he got up and he came over and all was forgiven. So it turned out um, that a small act of um, kindness uh, that probably cost, you know, three hundred and forty one dollars was what we needed to solve
0: the issues between us. I just want to say, number one, small acts of kindness actually do tend to work. And number two, they really do. And um yeah. I do have this sad image of Fred Savage, your biggest fan, watching you on Letterman, all excited to watch you on Letterman, and then you crack the joke about him and his heart. Me too.
1: Oh, yeah. it makes me sick to my stomach, I, honestly. Like, I really, you know, people think that, I, I think people will be surprised to know how much that, uh, that upsets me when, when it happens.
0: But <laughs> I do want to say, I'll wrap here. I, these, thing, these things happen to me too in writing where I've written books and someone yeah. who have, and they'll be like, I can't believe happened with us. You with and what?
1: I you wrote those terrible things about Jerry Tarkanian. Oh, there you go. That's the the tar- considered to be, you know, is who I put right
0: up there with um, with Oprah and Jesus. You know, <laughs> you think you're being funny or smart or whatever. And you are being funny or smart. And it does actually hurt when someone calls you and they're like, you know, yeah, I'm not mad. At it's the worst when someone says I'm not mad at you. Yeah. It just really cut me. Man, that sucks. I'm sorry. Yeah,
1: unless you're a sickle. I mean, if you have any decency, that that bothers you. But I'm sure there are plenty of people who are like, oh, I don't give a shit.
0: Well, listen, Jimmy, I uh, I appreciate your time. Obviously, I'm a huge admirer of your work and your show. And um,
1: same here, Jeff. Uh, if um, I assume everyone that listens has read your books, but I, I've been, you know, you know, I just enjoyed that that Lakers book on, on my vacation, and I. I love to read, but I don't get a chance to read much. So for me, to, I read maybe two books a year. So for me to read that is a big deal.
0: <laughs> I appreciate it very much. And uh, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, great. Jeff. Take care. I want to thank today's guest, Jimmy Kimmel, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Jimmy on Twitter, at Jimmy Kimmel, and watch Jimmy Kimmel Live every weeknight. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please consider going to the vehicle of your choice and leaving a nice review. I make no money for doing this, and I depend on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.